Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Did you know that no matter what your skin color is, you are still at risk for skin cancer and that a lot of skin cancer is related to UVA and UVB light exposure, meaning going outside. Particularly given the fact that we have such wonderful weather all year round, this can be a serious concern for people who live right here in the islands. Today, we're going to do part two of our dermatology discussion. The last time we had Dr. Rebecca Loria on the show, she was talking about the different types of ways that you can identify skin cancer. But now we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the problem, and we're going to talk a little more about different types of sunscreens, but also the need for screening and address some of the reasons why people don't like to wear sunscreen, in particular, vitamin D. Let's welcome back to the show, Dr. Rebecca Loria. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the last time we went through what my favorites are, the ABCDs of skin cancer, you know, the asymmetry and the borders and the colors and the diameter and the evolution. And so we talked a little bit about what those concerning features are. But, you know, that's particularly for melanoma. But there's other types of skin cancers. And in fact, there are certain groups of people who should really be concerned about screening. So, you know, I think I think skin cancer in general for folks who are a little bit paler in complexion, they have a greater risk of being out in the sun, but they're not the only group that should be concerned. Who should really be participating in skin cancer screening? Thank you. Wonderful question. So um, everybody potentially is at risk for skin cancer, no matter your complexion. And therefore, it's important for all of us to be aware of what to look for. And as a quick recap, you you uh, wonderfully went over the ABCDEs, but basically pigmented lesions, brown spots that are unusual for you. Um, also, anything that is uh, growing fast or bleeding easily or a non-healing sore uh, that's present for months. These are, these are all reasons to be concerned. But um, as far as, you know, who gets skin cancer? Um, so... Um, Some of the biggest risk factors for developing skin cancer include if you have a personal or family history of a prior skin cancer, or if you had a lot of UV radiation in your lifetime, whether from sun or from indoor tanning, um, if you have um, any sort of immune compromise, like a a transplanted organ, that sort of thing. Um, uh, These are our major risk factors. Also, if you have a lot of uh, atypical moles, and if you're really fair-complected, red hair, that sort of thing, then it can put you at greater risk. But even skin of color can develop skin cancer, and it's a common misconception that, oh, my skin tans, therefore I'm not at risk. That's actually false. Um, uh, The same general principles can apply about non-healing sores or lesions that seem unusual for you. Um, Something that particularly relevant in Hawaii is that uh, folks of Asian descent uh, may be more prone to getting their melanomas on the palms and the soles, which are palms of the hands and soles of the feet, which are areas that don't get a whole lot of sun exposure typically and are not what you necessarily think of when you think of skin cancer. Well, and I always think back to my reggae years when I really loved reggae, thinking I was someday going to be lucky enough to live on an island, and here I am. And I remember Bob Marley. He had 
skin cancer. He had melanoma that was like under his toenail or somewhere on his toe. It was in a very unusual presentation, and that's a fairly well-known artist. And so if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And that's certainly something to be concerned about. So I would imagine there must be some reason why particular ethnic populations might have a different location, and maybe it's not uh, in an area that's as sun-exposed, which kind of gets to the idea of prevention. So, you know, if everybody needs to be screened, and this could happen to anybody, then there are some ways that people, at least those who might be more likely to get it in sun-exposed areas, could limit their exposure. What are some of the things that people can do other than just like not going out to help themselves to avoid their increased risk of skin cancer? Great. So uh, as we uh, touched on last interview, about one in five Americans are uh, estimated to get skin cancer in their lifetime, and about 80% of that's theoretically preventable by sun protection. And sun protection uh, on the whole includes not just sunscreen, but also sun protective clothing and sun avoidant behaviors. Um, the other uh, thing that you touched on when you, when you spoke just now was the idea of screening and who should be screened. And I'd like to talk about that as well. So um, I think it's important to understand that we should be looking at our own skin. And about half of melanomas are actually self-detected. Um, now, as far as uh, you know, when to see the dermatologist. Most of the time, if you have not had a history of skin cancer, you don't have a, a particular concern, you're going to start with your primary care doctor. And your primary care doctor will do the skin exam typically uh, for you. And then if there's something concerning, the primary care doctor will typically refer to a dermatologist. Now, folks that have a, a strong personal or family history might get screened on a regular basis. Uh, and that can vary from once a year to every few months, kind of depending on the frequency with which a person grows skin cancers. Now, you mentioned a couple of times that once you get one, you're at a greater risk of developing another one. And I would imagine that because if you've if you've developed a skin cancer, obviously you've had a level of sun exposure or some type of reason why that has occurred. And just because you've treated the one doesn't mean that you're not going to have another one. Yes, true. So um, a personal history of skin cancer is a good predictor for whether or not you're likely to develop another one. So it, it, that's often how it kind of brings you into the fold of awareness. Um, but uh, the, the uh, question of what do you do beyond getting regular skin screening? Um, so sun protection is important. And I wouldn't want anyone to feel like, oh, shoot, well, it already happened. That ship has already sailed and no need to continue to sun protect. Because the risk is cumulative based on how much radiation your skin receives. The skin, like any other organ, can only handle so much radiation. In this case, we're talking about solar radiation coming from sun. Before your cells will, your cells will develop that DNA damage that causes mutations, aka skin cancer. So even if you are, you know, 80 years old, if you're in good health, uh, there's no reason not to start putting that hat on when you go out for your golf game. Well, and we, I just saw somebody today who said that exact thing. You know, so I have this skin cancer. Well, I guess it's too late to put on sunscreen. I guess it's too late to worry because the damage is already done. But in fact, 
that is a possibility that you could still need to sun protect. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. We have Dr. Rebecca Luria on the line. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about sun protection, about whether everybody who needs to be screened, they should be taking a look at things themselves. And what are the latest regarding some of the apps? Could that help you diagnose skin cancer? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we have Dr. Rebecca Lurie on the line. She is a board-certified dermatology expert, and we are talking about the sun. The beautiful sun that we get to enjoy all year round can sometimes be associated with increased risks if we're not careful of getting skin cancer. So before the break, we talked about how it's never too late to protect. And just today, I saw an individual who unfortunately had squamous cell cancer. So that's one that, you know, it can be identified by looking at the skin and determining doing a biopsy and finding out that there is a problem. But once you get that, there's still a need to sun protect, as you mentioned, Dr. Laurie, and that it's not just about, you know, let me just wear a hat. There's various different types of topical sunscreens or even clothing now that has SPF ratings on it. Correct. So again, to recap what we talked about last time, uh, when you're talking about sun protection, it is a big picture, not just sunscreen. And uh, sun protective clothing is a very big part of that, as is sun avoidant behavior, choosing off-peak sun hours and seeking shade. Um, But uh, oftentimes you'll see in clothing UPF. UPF stands for ultraviolet protection factor. And um, generally, clothing is going to do the best job at shielding from uh, solar radiation. When it comes to sunscreen, um, just about anything that you are willing to use that is SPF 30 or higher and labeled broad spectrum is probably a good bet for the remaining sun-exposed skin that you can't protect in other ways. Um, and uh, we talked last time about it, so I won't get into it uh, this time unless you want to. Well, let's ask. A, let's answer a couple of questions about sunscreen. You mentioned SPF 30 or higher is important. How often do you have to apply it? So if somebody decides, okay, I'm going to go to the beach, and maybe it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, still an area of sun exposure here in the islands, and I'm going to apply sunscreen. I'll put it on. Can you put it on when you're already out in the sun? Should you put it on beforehand? And when do you need to reapply it? Wonderful question. You really ought to put it on before you get out. And the reason for that is because when you're actively sweating or swimming, it's not going to stick as well on the skin. It's not going to have a chance to absorb in the way that it needs to to give you the best protection. So when it comes to the proper application of sunscreen, um, uh, the truth of the matter is that most of us, don't apply enough and we fail to reapply. And this is a, a really established uh, human feature. Um, so as a, as a frame of reference, when a sunscreen is being studied for what its SPF labeling ought to be, typically um, about a shot glass full of sunscreen will be applied to the exposed skin or about a teaspoon for the head and neck, a teaspoon for each arm, two teaspoons for each leg. Um, this is a volume that uh, many of us don't apply. 
Um, also, theoretically, we're supposed to reapply every two hours. However, most of us don't do that either. The uh, chemical sunscreens, the ones that absorb into the skin and, uh, and act like little sponges in the skin, uh, these do a little bit better for wet activities, sweating and water sports, because they don't wash off as much. Um, uh, but we talked about the concerns with those last show. The physical sunscreens like zinc and titanium, which do not absorb into the skin and rather sit on the surface of the skin and act like little umbrellas, shielding the skin from the, from the sun. Um, these, uh, though broad spectrum and inert, uh, these also have a tendency to wear off and wipe off. So there's no perfect sunscreen. There's nothing that, that will last your entire day at the beach. The question of, is an SPF 100 going to do much better for you than an SPF 30 is a question I get a lot. And the short answer is that, um, are you still there? Oh, absolutely. We're listening. Oh, I'm sorry. taking notes. Sorry. I'm like, huh, is SPF 100 <laughs> better than 30? To me, it sounds better because there's there's more numbers to it, but it's not really that much better, is it? So um, in theory, if you're applying the correct amount, SPF 100 isn't giving you that much more protection than an SPF 30. However, in practice, it actually does because we tend to underapply and we tend to fail to reapply. So... I am lured to the SPF 100, and if I'm not good about reapplying or applying enough, then I probably ought to go to that level. But if, if I'm really good and applying it every two hours, then potentially I could be following the rules, shall we say, and SPF 30 might be sufficient enough. Correct. But those super high SPFs are achieved through chemical sunscreens. So again, if you're looking for a physical blocker, it's going to cap at 50. Well, I'm looking for a don't get sunburnt because I remember a couple of episodes when I was younger that I was not as diligent. And I think that's the other thing that we talk about the cumulative exposure. Having really bad burns in your past is a bit of a problem, and that can come back to haunt you. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, so we know that if you uh, have a history of blistering sunburns in your childhood, that that definitely increases your risk for melanoma in particular. Um, we also see with uh, radiation from indoor sources like indoor tanning, um, this is an interesting statistic. So nearly all women who are diagnosed with melanoma under the age of 30 have engaged in indoor tanning. And this is kind of staggering, but even just one session of indoor tanning before the age of 35 increases your risk of melanoma by 75%. And it increases your risk of squamous cell by 67% and basal cell by 29%. Fairly shocking. Wow. Because I remember, you know, growing up in the East Coast, when when girls wanted to go to prom, they would often go get a tan beforehand. And tanning beds were, were a big thing back then. And that was a long time ago, and <laughs> as I can admit. But that's shocking, a 75% increase in your risk of skin cancer from going into a tanning bed below the age of 30. Correct. That's that's pretty shocking. Now, some people say they want to go out in the sun and they don't want to protect because they want to get vitamin D. Is that a good, adequate excuse for not using sunscreen or not being careful with sun hours and avoidance? I'm so glad you asked this question. So um, to put it into perspective, vitamin D is, um, is a vitamin that is found in uh, foods that we eat and is also a vitamin that we can 
convert to the active form through UVB, uh, ultraviolet B, uh, light exposure to our skin. And vitamin D is important uh, for calcium metabolism and bone health. And um, the concern is that if you are really conscientious about your sun protection, um, can you become vitamin D deficient? And, um, and the short answer is yes, you can develop a low vitamin D levels if you're uh, particularly careful. However, um, you can also uh, take in vitamin D through dietary measures. So it's found naturally in uh, foods like oily fishes. It can also easily be found over the counter as a supplement, usually together with calcium. Um, but the question of how much, if you needed, if you wanted to get your vitamin D through conversion to the active form with sunlight, um, first of all, is there a safe way of doing it? And second of all, how much exactly would you need? And uh, the answer to the first question, is there a safe way? The, the short answer is no, because the, the rays of light that convert your vitamin D to active form are ultraviolet B, which are the most carcinogenic or cancer-causing of the rays. So those things go hand in hand. The second part of that question of uh, how much sun exposure does a person need to get adequate vitamin D levels without necessarily doing a dietary supplement? And um, this is dependent on your complexion. So folks of a very light complexion will, um, will need fewer minutes of sun exposure to get their active vitamin D, and folks with darker complexions will need a longer amount of time. So for example, uh, someone who is very fair-complected, uh, the sort of person who is prone to a lot of actinic keratoses or precancers and basal cells and squamous cells, that individual um, is typically going to need only about 15 minutes over the course of a week, give or take, of uh, uh, ambient light to sun-exposed skin like your arms and face. So you do not need to go out uh, in a teeny bikini and lay out in the sun for you know a half an hour. And in fact, if you do so, you're likely to burn. So um, again, to to recap, uh, the same rays of light that convert vitamin D to active form are the same rays that cause skin cancer. And uh, you can uh, intake your vitamin D through dietary means. You do not necessarily need to get it from UV light exposure. But if you did want to get it through UV light exposure, you really don't need a heck of a lot. And if you are concerned about your vitamin D level, uh, you're not going to show a symptom typically uh, um, that you can identify. This is going to be figured out by blood testing. So you can come in, you can get a test, and if it's low, then you can at least know what the next step might be. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Loria about whether or not the weather makes a difference. Is it okay to just go out when it's cloudy? You'll find out. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we have Dr. Rebecca Luria on the line. She is a board-certified dermatologist, and we are talking about what to do to protect yourself from skin cancer. Now, at the top of the show, we talked a little bit about some of the strategies of who needs to be screened, which is all of us, and who does the screening, which is ourselves and our primary care doctors. And then we talked a little bit about the different types of sunscreen and why we need to apply and reapply, which is an important thing to remember. And now, you know, I I often think to myself, oh, it's cloudy and it's overcast. Maybe I don't have to worry about sunscreen, but am I fooling myself, Dr. Luria? So uh, clouds and shade will protect you somewhat, but not completely. So just because it's a cloudy day does not mean that you cannot get sunburned um, or that you're not uh, incurring more damage to your skin. In Hawaii, we're blessed to have uh, many sunny days and a pretty high UV index. And I think on the whole, we could do a lot better uh, shielding our keiki from the sun, more shade structures and uh, uh, better encouragement of some protective clothing, hats and the like. Um, something else that I think of as, that is of interest is that um, uh, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders actually are twice as likely to die of their melanoma than the average for the state. And that's probably due to um, late detection and this uh, misbelief or false belief that if your skin can tan, uh, that you're immune from skin cancer. That's a really important statistic. I want to repeat that, that if you're Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, you are twice as likely to have significant problems with uh, dying of, of skin cancer because of late detection and the false mm-hmm. belief that just because you tan, you can't get skin cancer. Correct. That's pretty alarming because... You know, a lot of folks just feel like, hey, if I'm if my skin tans, that means that in the sun, my skin does what it's supposed to. So I couldn't possibly have a problem. So it really is something that we have to, as a as a society, take a look and say, hey, this is a problem. We need to work on it from an entire community wide perspective. And you mentioned having more sun structures. And to me, that's that's key, you know, making sure we have adequate coverage, whether you go to the beach and there's trees or whether you bring your own sort of umbrella or tent or something that you want to hang out in. The other thing that I wonder is, you know, sometimes folks feel like, well, I'm going in the ocean and if my body's underwater, it's not exposed to the sun. But there can be some reflective rays, particularly that affect the face and other areas that are out of the water. Isn't that right? That's absolutely true. So, um, the, the light will reflect up from the water. Um, it can pass through the water. Um, it can pass through your, your clothing if it's, uh, you know, a flimsy, you know, cotton T-shirt. Uh, so it's one of those common sense things. If you are out and it's only 8 in the morning, but your skin feels hot, you feel that sun beating down on you, chances are you're getting plenty of radiation. Same is true if, uh, you know, the, the clouds are overhead and it's not as hot as it might be, but it still feels like your skin is burning, chances are it is. So it's one of those uh, use your common sense moments. Well, I have to tell you, sometimes common sense 
is not that common, and I am guilty of thinking it's cloudy, I should be fine, and yet violating all the rules. So, you know, the other thing I'm curious about is there's, you know, with the advent of telemedicine, there's been a lot of effort to create different apps, different products, different ways that, you know, you can detect skin cancer by using this particular computerized app. And yet, you know, in my mind, particularly for skin issues, nothing really replaces that physical evaluation that you're looking at. Because you're you're not just looking at, you know, a two-dimensional image. You're kind of looking at three dimensions. Is it raised? Is it shiny? Is this something that, you know, we really should consider if you have a suspicious skin lesion? Taking a picture of it is potentially helpful, but not going to be diagnostic. You really need to get seen by an expert. Yes, I agree completely. So um, as a method of triage, it could be a reasonable starting point in as far as, you know, this may be considering come in and get an exam. But um, part of what we talked about at the beginning of the show was the ugly duckling idea and putting, putting that lesion into the context of what your skin normally does. That's hard to accomplish by, you know, one still photograph. Um, also, you, you get a lot of information um, by texture and by uh, something called dermoscopy, where we use a specialized polarized um, set of lenses and light to get more information looking at a lesion than what you can just see with the naked eye. So there, there are bedside tools that, um, that are extremely useful that make um, telehealth challenging for um, trying to diagnose skin lesions uh, for, for many cases. So nothing replaces an in-person visit to a dermatologist for a lesion that's concerning for skin cancer. And if a lesion is concerning for skin cancer, it's going to need to be biopsied anyway, so that's going to be done in person. And there's different types of biopsy techniques, but in general, that can be done in an office environment. Correct. Um, It only takes a few minutes. It's close to painless. It's very easy. Uh, So when there's a concern for skin cancer, typically we uh, clean the skin off, numb it up with a little lidocaine, and take a scrape, sometimes a little bit deeper plug with a stitch, but usually just a scrape uh, using a razor and uh, or a blade and uh, typically we'll we'll get our answer back in a matter of days or weeks with uh, what the diagnosis is. And from there, we can then determine whether or not the lesion needs to be fully removed, and if so, how. And that's dependent on location of the tumor, type of tumor, depth of tumor, um, and patient preferences. So in some cases, it could be something simple like scraping it off. But in other cases, if it's a serious skin cancer, it may require a larger amount of removal to make sure that all of it's gone. Is that right? That's correct. So, for example, if, um, if a lesion turns out to be just a superficial basal cell, which is um, a, a slow-moving skin cancer that will eventually eat away whatever's in its path over many years, um, this is not an aggressive tumor. And, um, and sometimes we even treat this non-surgically with uh, basically chemotherapy cream. Uh, sometimes we just numb it up and scrape it with a curette and cauterize it or burn it, scrape and burn, um, which takes all of about you know, 10 minutes and, uh, and is, is easy to heal from as a biopsy typically. Um, uh, in other situations, for example, uh, with squamous cell cancers, usually those are going to be removed surgically where it's cut and sewn, but the margin is only just... Uh, you know, half a centimeter, which is not huge um, in comparison to, say, a melanoma, which is uh, a potentially life-threatening tumor if it's caught late 
Um, in those situations, when the melanoma is on the, the larger or deeper side, then typically we're taking a full centimeter margin all the way around and cutting not just the skin, but all the way through the, the tissue beneath, including the fat beneath the skin, all the way down to the underlying muscle. Sometimes then also taking the um, draining lymph node from that area to see whether or not the tumor has already spread or metastasized. Which gets to the concern you mentioned earlier about certain groups of folks that have a higher rate of later detection because there are concerns about a variety of reasons why people may not have the opportunity to come in and have that taken care of. You know, one of the false beliefs is that, hey, you know what, if your skin tans, you're not at risk, and that is not the case. Well, I really appreciate you joining us again, Dr. Luria. We are going to have to have this as a regular segment because there's a lot of things that we all need to do, and I know I am guilty of not applying often and reapplying enough sunscreen, so I'm going to try and do better. And I'm sure that some other folks will work on that as well because we all need to protect ourselves from the skin cancer that potentially could affect us and as we get older. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show, Dr. Rebecca Luria. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can find our first part of our dermatology show on the HPR app as well as online. We'll see you next week. Our engineer is David Chong. Thanks for listening.